welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. In this episode, you'll learn a simple and profound concept that every product manager and product marketer must understand. And this is an easy one to get wrong. Even Pepsi got this wrong when they created a new product called Crystal Pepsi. The simple part of the concept? Don't confuse your customer. Yeah, duh. The profound part? When introducing something new or making a change to a product, give your customer a reason. My guest to explain this concept is Kyle Murray, the Vice Dean and Professor of Marketing at the Alberta School of Business. Kyle studies human judgment and decision-making. His work uses the tools of experimental psychology and behavioral economics to better understand the choices that consumers make. He is also a co-author of an article explaining the mistake Pepsi made with Crystal Pepsi. And when I read this article, I recognized how important this concept is to product managers. For a written summary of my discussion with Kyle, go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 159. Also, have you made a goal for your career this year? I've talked with product managers with a year of experience, all the way to others with 20 years of experience, and find that they're lacking in an understanding of product management. And it's not that surprising as product management has a lot of puzzle pieces to put together. It is one of the most fun yet demanding roles in an organization. Just think how cross-functional it is. I put the puzzle pieces together in the IDIF framework. The IDIF framework provides product managers with more confidence, influence in their organization, and growing success. And I've heard that from several people who have gone through the IDIF framework course. And as part of that course, I start live coaching sessions, meeting every other week for 12 weeks in just a few days on January 11th, 2018. I only did one coaching session last year, and I'll probably only do one again this year. But we'll be meeting every other week for 12 weeks to go through the concepts together and help you solve any problems that you're having in your role as a product manager. And because they start on January 11th, that means you still have time to join the course before the interactive sessions do begin. And remember, as listeners, I always make sure there's great deals available for you to see all that the IDEA Framework course offers and your special discount as a listener. Please go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea, that's I-D-E-A. And remember, the life coaching sessions are starting real soon, January 11th. So if you're interested, check it out now, theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea. It's a great way to start this new year that we just got into 2018. Now to the interview with Kyle. Kyle, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Hey, my pleasure. So I came across this really interesting article I found lately, I guess, based on some research that you and your colleagues have done. And you were highlighting Crystal Pepsi as an innovation example. I love that example. Maybe sometime later, I should get your insights into New Coke, which was a, another very interesting story. And surprisingly, new, this is a complete aside, but surprisingly, New Coke is you know, branded as, as one of the all-time epic marketing failures. And yet, I think Coke has never seen such a dramatic turnaround in, in their history as, at that point. When it comes to Crystal Pepsi, not quite the success Pepsi wanted either. And when we talk about innovations, we can kind of put them in these different camps. And one kind of standard camp is, is it more of a sustaining innovation or is it a radical innovation? And it looks like you're you're doing research in the space. Uh, I'm just curious, what what kind of drove you in this direction? What what caused you to research it? 
Well, uh, my interest and in, in that of my colleagues and co-authors is really uh, on the consumer side. Hmm. So what, what makes the consumer say something's radical or something's you know, kind of familiar? What makes them react negatively? What makes them react positively? Uh, and, and really, that gets most interesting when the innovation is radical, mm-hmm. when it's, it's something that they didn't expect and it's quite different. And trying to understand the psychology behind that, um, that's really what we do. I like that perspective from the consumer's eyes because there's some things, well, you know, those of us that live through the iPod coming into the marketplace, yeah. a lot of people think of that as this radical innovation. And yet at the time, I, I came across some research, there were over 100 different MP3 players on the market, you know, before the iPod came out. Right. So more sustaining innovation or radical innovation? I, I guess from the consumer's eyes, that, that really would be a difference. From my perspective, it kind of all comes down to the consumer. We can define it however we like when we're making products. Mm-hmm. The consumer decides if it's radical or if it's not. Right. Really different or if it's just something kind of like we already know. Okay. And, and you've been looking specifically at this re- retail space of packaged goods, consumer pa- packaged goods, CPGs. For listeners not familiar with that, we, we have listeners involved in software and, and building products, medical devices kind of across the board. Can you just give us an understanding of what the CPG industry, that business is kind of like? Sure. So, I mean, so our research is really fairly broad. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about the Crystal Pepsi example, which uh-huh. is a, a CPG type example. But essentially, the consumer packaged goods business is all that stuff you find in the grocery store that uh, comes in a package right? and, and, and is aimed at consumers. So it's, it's a broad category. It's where a lot of marketing grads from business schools want to go. Um, often those companies are thought of as some of the best marketers in the world. Um, they develop uh, many, many products. I think globally, um, one of the databases that tracks new consumer products, the Mintel database, will tell you they get something like 33,000 new products into their database on a monthly basis. So it's, uh, it's one of the reasons it's an interesting industry to study is because innovation happens so quickly um, and it really spans the gamut from changing the color of the product or something maybe nobody would even notice, just ends up in a slightly different skew or stock keeping unit, mm-hmm. um, something that truly is radically different. 33,000 new SKUs, that, that's a lot of products and product variation every month. Right. And, and you know, w- one of the things that probably most people uh, realize right away and you hear that kind of number is, those don't all go on to be hits. In fact, a lot of those products fail and disappear quickly. And in the consumer packaged goods business in particular, some of the products are only meant to be around for a few months. Um, so Lay's will make potato chips, for example, that uh, they really expect that flavor to be out for two or three months, mm-hmm. grab a little bit of market share and excitement, and then disappear again. Yeah, that, that's a good example, new flavors. Yeah. It's not like we're just adding 33,000 new products every month on top of 33,000 on top of 33,000. These are, it's kind of a flow of, of old products leaving, new products coming in. Sometimes it's failure and sometimes it's just um, obsolescence or quick changes in taste. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've come across any kind of credible research on the failure rate of CPGs. I've looked at numbers from different research studies on, on innovation in general, right? New product. And the numbers are all over the place, right? From a dismal, you know, only 5% succeed right. to a more realistic, on the high side, I think the highest credible research I've seen is around 56% of new introductions succeed. So, Yeah, I think Clay Christensen at Harvard sort of came out with a, an example people repeated and used over and over again. And you know, then it turned out that number doesn't really have any 
really credible empirical support. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's all over the place. I don't think it even means anything to come up with a general number of new product failures. Really, you want to think about within a category or a, a customer segment what, what the turnover is like. Mm-hmm. But most of us just know from our own lives, um, we constantly see products enter the market. Maybe we even try them once or twice and then they leave again. Yeah. From television shows down to toothbrushes, right? It could be all kinds of different things that we consume. And in the CPG space, like you gave the flavor example, sometimes this is how the the innovators behind the products are actually testing products. When I looked at Snapple one time that makes the uh, right. uh, beverages, I forget who bought Snapple now. Are they, are they owned by Pepsi? I'm not sure. But, One of the big companies, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. I think it might be Pepsi. That they they found it to be less expensive to actually just produce a flavor. Test procedure was the employees would decide if they liked the flavor or not. If they liked it, they made it, and if it didn't sell through, then they would just discount it, and that they were still ahead of doing any kind of formal market testing. Yeah, and and this sort of approach to new product development and um, it's sort of somewhat related to the design thinking or ideation approach, which is rapid prototype, Mm -hmm. get a little bit of support, put it in the market and let the market decide. And obviously not every category you can do that in, but something like potato chips or soft drinks, you can innovate fairly quickly and easily and see what the market thinks. Good background on consumer packaged goods business a little bit and lots of volume every month uh, taking place there. Let's dive into the Crystal Pepsi example that you shared in the article. And for listeners, I'll put a link to back, back to the article that Kyle helped to write about this, along with the research paper that you worked on previously for this. But tell us about the Crystal Pepsi story a little bit and why that's a good innovation kind of case study to learn from. Uh, so, so the quick version of the story is you know, Pepsi launched um, this new product, which was really the same product they'd always had. It was basically just Pepsi, but it was clear. Um, they thought it would be a billion-dollar brand. It was uh, a lot of money was put into it. A lot of effort was put into it, uh, and it, you know, on the face of it, it seems reasonable. I mean, we have clear colas like Seven Up and Sprite around in the marketplace. Um, here's another clear cola at a time when people are starting to think about, um, you know, what's the point of having a dye or something like mm-hmm. that in the product. Um, they put a lot of marketing muscle behind it. So this isn't the case of just uh, let's try a flavor as we talked about with Snapple and throw it in the market and see how it goes. There was um, uh, a conscious plan to build a billion dollar brand in this new clear cola category. Um, and people, I mean, there's always a few explanations for why something <clears throat> like that doesn't work, but um Essentially, people looked at it and said, why? Hmm. Well, why, why do we want a clear colored Pepsi? What, what's going on here? Why are you doing, you know, sort of almost a why are you doing this to us story? Why are you, why are you doing this to our soft drink? So the consumers did not understand why this product existed. They had a Pepsi they loved. Right. Why should I be interested in the clear version of Pepsi? Yeah. And so you may not think of that as a radical innovation, right? It's just take away the dye, uh-huh. give it a different name. No change in flavor. Yeah. Don't change the flavor. I mean, it's, it's really this, it's, it's, it's what's made it a, a classic example because it was perceived to be really radical by the market, but it's, it's a fairly superficial change to the product. Uh-huh. And, and it gets it, it. The reason it's become a classic example in the literature is, it gets at the heart of what drives acceptance for these kinds of products, which is 
if we see them as being too different from or incongruent with what we expect a new product to be, then we go from where we normally are with new products, being kind of curious about them, to starting to feel anxious about them. And in this most recent paper, um, what we were interested in is understanding why. Um, And what it came down to for things like Crystal Pepsi, where really most of the change is driven by one feature, um, the, the issue is just being able to explain why you did it. And in hindsight, Pepsi just didn't do that well. They kind of launched it with fanfare and excitement and told people it's a great new clear cola, um, but they didn't explain why it was clear. Right. I suspect there's a few dimensions of that explanation we could try to dive into. So I, I, I'm I'm putting my consumer hat on and thinking about you know a, a consumer at the time. Do you remember the time frame when Crystal Pepsi came out? I, I don't recall when this showed up. Maybe a decade ago. Is it that long? No, it's it's more than that. We should we should uh, quickly grab that. And as you're looking for that, because what I was thinking about was you know if this was today, I know as my family has become a little bit more health conscious and and at right. least thinking about what we eat in the last few years. We, we, we make conscious choices to, to avoid dyes if we can, right? It's like, you know, sure. why are you guys putting this stuff in there if it doesn't, there, there's no value in it, right? Yeah, and, and, and they were on the cutting edge. So it was 90, 1993, okay. about 25 years ago. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I mean, in some ways, Pepsi, and, and this is often true with consumer packaged goods, uh, they worry so much about where things were going. They were ahead of that trend. Things that we worry about today, they were in front of it. And uh, like if you put yourself in their shoes, it's it's easy to see why they thought this was a good idea. Sure. And and why they thought this isn't radical. People should be pretty willing to accept it. Uh, and that's what makes it really interesting for us to study. Yeah. I want to just tease out some of the issues there. Because if it was today, we were talking about Crystal Pepsi, and I'm part of an audience that is trying to avo- avoid food dye, you know, that yeah. would be appealing to me. But they would have to make that clear that this was your the same great Pepsi, just without food dye. Right. And they would have to probably share a little bit of reason why that's a better thing for you, right? Why do that? Yeah, and, sure. Which might – and maybe they refine cannibalizing or harming, you know, the brand image a little bit of existing Pepsi. But yeah. it seems like there would be some negative connotation there like, well, why have you been giving me the food dye all these years if you don't really need to? Right. So how as a brand manager, you might deal with that. Yeah, it's, it's a little tricky, right? I mean, it, it reminds me a bit of Mercedes launching a $35,000 car, right? On one hand, you say, okay, people love Mercedes, but they see it's a little expensive. Um, so I'll give you a $35,000 car, but you kind of worry if you convince people that Mercedes makes a $35,000 car, they may not want to go there for their $150,000 car. Right. And it's the same sort of idea that, yeah, you take away the coloring and you say, we're doing this because it's better for you. Um, and then really you're kind of also saying our traditional soda, not so much. Uh, and, and there's a bit of risk there for sure. Yeah. So it seems like that they needed, they would have in this example needed to come up with a third dimension to provide it to the consumers uh, a reason, right? You, you said it, we, we get feeling anxious when things are incongruent with what we expect. They just don't quite make sense to us. So they could introduce a third dimension that would make sense of why is this Pepsi clear, like an added benefit on top yeah. of this, that that might help. So so not not to get a, a whole lot of academia on you here, but 
really what we're looking at, the phrase we use for that, um, when people are trying to make sense of something that's different, there's something we call a conjunctive enabler. That is, there's something that enables people to make sense of a feature that doesn't make sense to them. So in the Crystal Pepsi example, um, what we did was we just told people, so to test this idea, we, we ran an actual Pepsi taste test. Um, we just told them, uh, our participants, they were testing an, uh, a new cola, mm-hmm. and we gave them either regular Pepsi or clear Pepsi. And then we had a second condition where we either told them um, uh, just that this was a new cola that was going to compete with Coke and Pepsi in the market, or we gave them uh, a cola and told them it was going to compete with Coke and Pepsi in the market, and it was made with natural spring water. Huh. And so we didn't say it's clear because it has natural spring water. But just associating that kind of idea of natural spring water with the cola allowed people to put together on their own, oh, that's why it's clear. Mm-hmm. So when it was a, a regular Pepsi, people didn't like it anymore when it was made with uh, natural spring water. But they liked the clear Pepsi, the crystal Pepsi, dramatically more. In fact, as much as regular Pepsi when we said it was made with natural spring water. Uh, and that was just one example. Some of the more extreme examples we looked at were we wanted to test some things that were really difficult. Like do you want vitamin enriched coffee? Huh. It turns out most people don't like the idea of vitamins in their coffee, uh, but strangely, it might change the flavor. I would think, right? So that's I, what you know, don't, kind of think, you know, yeah, don't mess with the flavor of it. Yeah. And why would you do that to coffee? Right? So part of what we're doing is helping people understand that this new product is really kind of different than the current one. That is, it's kind of a subtype or a subcategory. Um, but it's not something you have to be anxious about. So it's kind of like the original one, but it's not going to ruin your idea of what that original thing is. Hmm. So vitamin-enriched coffee, people don't like. Surprisingly, if you color it green, they like it more. So you wouldn't think anybody would like green coffee, which they don't, or vitamin-enriched coffee. But green vitamin-enriched coffee, that actually sounds like something they would at least consider trying uh, because it makes more sense. It's not They're not going to like that as much as mm-hmm. bl- regular black coffee but they like it more than they do with just either one. And uh, so that's what we call an enabler. And that enabler can help position a product in the minds of the customers without spending a lot of money kind of talking to them or explaining to them why it is, just giving them another feature that helps connect the dots. This enabler concept is really important. I'm glad we're talking about it and I appreciate the research that you and your colleagues are doing on this because it helps us as product managers and and people involved in marketing, bring products uh, to the consumer to think maybe a little bit more deeply about, you know, we want to make a change to a product, one change, but how's the the perception going to be of the consumer in response to that change? And maybe there's this other third dimension, the enabler that we need to also add to help make sense of this. That if we get too far out of what people expect, we create this anxiety and people won't buy our product. Yeah. And and as we sort of got into this, I mean, one of the other, there's lots of examples. One of the other examples we looked at was um, people have a hard time understanding if you were to say, you know, this cell phone or this mobile phone is recyclable. You can recycle everything in the phone. That doesn't seem to make sense to people. But you can even do it in uh, a haptic or kind of touch-based way. A phone that feels a little bit more that's wrapped in like a cardboard fiber rather than a plastic. And people go, okay, well, that feels like something that's recyclable. Hmm. And again, I put two and two together. So it's, it's, it's giving them a, a feature or a set of features that create a product that in total makes sense 
even if one of those features on its own would have stood out. And it turns out that a lot of the time when we think something's radical, it's because of one feature. It's because the Pepsi is clear or um, we tell people the phone is recyclable. Uh And I just, that it seems too different from what they expect in that category. And as a result, they start to feel anxious about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, as you're talking through that, feel how I respond to those actual messages, right? And in the yeah. case of Pepsi, I'm not a Pepsi lover. So, you know, it's hard for me to uh, extend my <laughs> empathy there. But um, I would think my first question would be, why is it clear? How, how, how did you mess up the flavor, right? How, how is this? Right. Am I going to like it as much? Or the phone, if it's recyclable, my first thought is, well, it's going to be cheap. It, it's made to be disposed, <laughs> Right. right. It's not going to be as durable. Right. And if you add this enabler dimension to help resolve that tension and make sense of it, in my mind, then the consumers are engaged again and and probably more interested in it. Yeah. The green coffee is a really interesting one. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> That's have, the most extreme. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you've come across mushroom coffee. Uh, I, I was <laughs> I was drinking mushroom coffee last year and still still do occasionally. It's supposed to have good cognitive benefits and help you huh. uh, think a little bit better. One of the things that we've learned in this space is, you know, we'll sit back and we'll think about, okay, for this next study, we, we don't want to use a real product. So we don't want to, we don't want to say, for example, it is Pepsi and have to deal with how people feel about the brand. Mm-hmm. We want to just look at the innovation. So we try to think up, you know, what would be a really radical product like green coffee or vitamin enriched coffee or carbonated milk or something that, you know, should probably turn people off. Whatever we come up with, it exists somewhere. Isn't I don't think interesting? ever, you know, we think of something that's too weird, but then we'll search for it on the internet and we'll realize, okay, somebody is trying to do that. Somebody is trying to sell that. You find it out there. That's interesting. I, yeah. I thought, you know, maybe there's a nice little spinoff here of the research you guys are doing are, are seeding new product ideas, <laughs> but someone's already yeah. doing it. With, with 33,000 new products a month, somebody's doing everything to some extent, it seems. That's right. So those are great examples. So the, the Crystal Pepsi, green coffee, cell phones. I'm just curious if you have another one or two you could share to help help bring this concept home. Well, over the years, we've looked at a lot of, of different um, – Type. So, you know, there's uh, another one that's kind of a classic in North America is colored toilet paper. Hmm. So people just don't like the idea of black toilet paper, for example, in North America. But in, in Japan, um, people have told me that there's actually a preference for colored toilet paper. Hmm. Other ones are uh, that we have used over time are things like um, vitamin enriched vodka. We thought initially that that was pretty strange. Some other people had used it in their research. Uh, but if you're working with students at a university, they don't find that strange at all. So that's one that, that they actually were fine with. Yeah, there's a variety of things like that that, that we've looked at over time. And I, I think if you get beyond kind of um, the scientific studies and, and think about it in terms of what's out there in the world, um, it's, it's a little tricky sometimes because you know, we tend to remember and pay attention to product successes more than failures. Sometimes we don't even see the failures. Uh, But there are lots of examples of products that um, seem like maybe they should have been okay, but consumers responded poorly Mm -hmm. to. And often they're they're somewhat ahead of their time. Um, I often think of when I get in my vehicle now and push the start button, Mm -hmm. um, which now you pay more for. Uh, When the Ford Edsel came out with push button start, uh, it creeped people out. They didn't like that at all. They wanted to 
like every other car, use a key. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, it, and it, it often comes down to just one or two features that people just don't understand. What, why would we push button start? Right. I've always started cars with a key. It was a step too far for what people could make sense of. Yeah. And, and you mentioned iPods before. I mean, people yeah. forget what Apple did and the effort they put into the Newton, right? Which is a handheld computer early on. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sort of failed. And a lot of the learnings from that went into building what eventually became the phone, right? The mm-hmm. iPhones. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's part of what makes this whole innovation space so interesting is there's a lot going on and it's, it's always nuanced. Um, from the consumer side, maybe it's a little bit more straightforward. If it's too weird, they don't want it. Right. It's just defining what's too weird that's hard sometimes. Yeah. Especially in CPGs where P&G talks about, Procter & Gamble talks about the, I'm trying to think how they phrase it, uh, it's the something moment. And it will maybe come to me a moment. In a moment, this phrase will come to me. But it's when the shopper is in the grocery store and walking down the, the row of, of choices, right? And a product stands out to them. And it's in that moment that, that they're trying to capture the, the consumer's attention. And so this is usually achieved through packaging, through colors, through the shape of the packaging, lettering, things that try to differentiate their product in some positive way. So in CPGs, we're, we're making pretty quick, split-second kind of decisions. Am I going to get this one or that one? And anything that seems out of place or odd that makes our brain work too hard is probably not going to get our attention. Yeah, and I mean, it's... It's more obvious, I think, with CPGs when you're at the shelf and buying groceries and you're you know, trying to get out of the store in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, but what research will tell us is a lot of the time that's true for everything from you know, where you're going to invest your retirement savings to how you decide if you're going to buy a car or a house. Right? So you, again, I'll use the Edsel example, but you get in the Edsel and there's no key and you're like, nope, that's not for yeah. me. Right? Regardless of how innovative or um, uh, well-designed the product might be or one of the things that took a long time, and some people still uh, find it strange, is you know you go into a home and you, you go up in the master bedroom and you realize oh the there's no door between the bathtub and the bedroom. Hmm. The bathtub is just kind of in the bedroom, uh, and for a lot of people that was a whoa no no that's not for me I, I'm used to a door. Uh, so just sometimes just a small thing on hundreds of thousand dollar or even a million dollar decision um, can be enough to turn you off and. And it's not the kind of thing where you necessarily sit back and say to your real estate agent, you know, why is that? Right? You just kind of look at it and go, whoa, that's wrong. Right. And so what we're, what we're trying to understand is what can we do to just make that seem right mm-hmm. without having to have a, you know, a discussion or a sales pitch about it? Yeah. And it's wrong based on our experience or something in our experience that tells us, man, you know, clear Pepsi, that, that's just messed up. Right? Right, right. But if there's a simple message to connect it, that helps our brain to make sense of it, like clear Pepsi with natural spring water. Right. Oh, well, of course, natural spring water better be clear, right? Or <laughs> Yeah, 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 so, exactly. Or something is wrong. It's yeah. not, it may be natural, but it's not something I want to drink. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. We, you know, it's also, we were talking about CPG, but some of my earlier work was in kind of software and, and uh, online shopping interfaces and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And And a related idea there is, people become very habitual in the kinds of skills they use to go shopping or to use software and they can get locked in to that skill set. And anything that asks them to relearn or really uh, move those skills into something new, hmm. uh, it's hard. 
right? And and the example I used to use, now they've changed it, but for years, Amazon had this tab-based interface. They still have a version of it, but they, they really had that tab-based interface um, that was from 1995. Uh-huh. And people would look at it and say, well, why, why is the design so outdated? Um, but part of the genius there was people were used to using it that way. Right. To change it is to ask people to change the way. It's like in a grocery store moving where the milk is. Right? You interrupt that habit, you make it difficult for them, um, and, and that just makes it harder for them to accept a new product. Milk is a great example in the form of uh, silk. The, the silk brand caught my attention when it came out. So this was soy milk. And yeah. a lot of people don't realize because we, we didn't know. <laughs> uh, silk was out on the grocery shelves for a long time, failing as a product. And it wasn't until they the company paid the fees and had it moved to the dairy section um, <laughs> and put it next to regular milk that people started buying it. Because that's where you expect to find your milk. You don't expect to find it out unrefrigerated. And if you find it somewhere else, you know, it's again, it's kind of this like one feature. Mm-hmm. It's not in the right place. And so your instant reaction is, okay, well, that's not milk then. Yeah. I don't know what that is, but I'm not pouring that on my cereal. If you don't refrigerate it, it's, yeah. it's wrong. It's, again, right. it's messed up. <laughs> right. So it, rather, than, rather than trying to you know, put out brochures to explain why it can sit on the shelf, just put it on the in the freezer or in the cooler beside the milk. Right. People understand. Right. Right. It's not milk. It doesn't come from cows, but it's like milk. I can put it on my cereal or in my coffee. It's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. It was a really smart move. And they, yeah. they were brilliant in the name also. Got to give them props for the cho- choosing silk as a as the right. name for the product. Okay. So th- this has been a great discussion. This concept of the enabler to help resolve the anxiety that a consumer might feel when introducing a new feature, a new aspect of a product that is in some way inconsistent, well, then think about another dimension, uh, this enabler feature you can bring in that makes sense of it without having to really explain the story. Love that. Really useful research. As listeners know, I also love innovation quotes and uh, was hoping you would share one with us and why you chose that one. Okay. So so this is one that may or may not uh, have been said in exactly this way, and, and I'll be paraphrasing it a little bit, but it's one that I think about and, and use a lot. And that was Henry Ford saying, you know, if I asked people what they want, they would have said a faster horse. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I've always found that useful as a way to think about innovation. If you, um, often what we want to do is go out and ask people and, that, and that's fine. Um, but kind of at the heart of innovation is understanding the people that you're going to be serving even better than they necessarily understand themselves. So what they really want is not a faster horse. They want a more convenient and maybe quicker way to get from A to B. Right? They don't really know that because all they've known is a horse. Right. And so they, you know, that was kind of the idea. Whether he said it or not, I, I, that's one that I often think about. It's, it's a great one. It's been used by Steve Jobs and others, too, yeah. to express that point that, yes, we have to know our customers, but we also have, have to solve the actual problem, which may not be the one they're stating. That's right. Because, you know, and, and this comes back to what we've been talking about. Uh, it's not that people are dumb. Right. It's just they don't think that much about it. Right. My job isn't to sit around and think about what's the next great Apple innovation or what's better than a horse. You know, my job is to do what I do every day. But if you can come up with something that's better than my horse or really innovates in terms of my consumer electronics, I'm going to be all over that. Right. Uh, but don't ask me. That's your job. 
that's a great quote and encompasses much of uh, issues and in innovation. Yeah. When it comes to your research, and you also have a book that came out last year regarding the retail value proposition, if you could tell listeners about the book and about just how they could follow up with you and the work that you're doing at the university there, if anyone wants to reach out to you. Sure. So, I mean, the easiest way to kind of connect with the work that I'm doing is uh, through my website, which is just kylemurray.com. Um, you can find my articles and columns and books there. Uh, the book, The American Retail Value Proposition, was actually uh, sort of a second edition, an updated edition of an earlier book that was just the retail value proposition. Uh, and it's a broader look at some of the issues we've been talking about today. So it's not just, um, you know, innovation in, in products. It covers some of that. But it's how do you put the whole thing together from when a customer starts to think about where they're going to shop right through till they buy a product and, and beyond. Um, and so it's something that I've used a lot in teaching. The, the book is, has been uh, pretty popular in industry, mm-hmm. but it's that, it's that high-level view of putting all the pieces together, um, which I, I think what makes retail and the consumer packaged goods industry in- interesting is that's a really complex process. So I tried to, to simplify it and, and put it in a book, and it, it, was, it was a fun process to do that. And that might be another topic for us sometime too. I'm sure there's listeners that are facing the decline of traditional brick and mortar retail as part of some aspect of their business. And yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Interesting. Exactly, right? And I'm sure your book has become quite popular to just help think through what is involved in the value proposition. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So again, uh, research at kylemurray.com, the recent book, The American Retail Value Proposition. And thanks for discussing enablers and how we can keep our consumers from being anxious about product variations we create. Absolutely. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Kyle at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 159. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.